The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, savings on Honor Harrington and Larry Correa's latest. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. Today, we bring you part two of our interview with Larry Correa about the latest installment in his Saga of the Forgotten Warrior series, Tower of Silence. But first, the news. David Weber's Honor Harrington is one of the most celebrated characters in science fiction, a landmark of military SF since first entry on Basilisk Station, the Honor Harrington series has become one of the longest-running series in science fiction history. Now, for the month of April, we're offering all the mainline Honor Harrington novels, from On Basilisk Station to Uncompromising Honor, in a special discount bundle. Only need a few titles to round out your collection? Purchase discounted subseries bundle or enjoy $1 off individual titles in the Honor Harrington series. Buy bundles and check out details at Bain.com. These discounts are good wherever Bain ebooks are sold, and the offer ends April 30th. And that's it for the news. In the world building, stepping away from the society for a second, let's talk about demons. Oh, yeah. What are they? Where, where did they come from? Why are they... Why are they a menace? All right. So what we know in the book, and I've actually had, exactly. some, I've had a lot of readers guess, and uh, some have gotten it right, some have got it wrong. Uh, but the demons are incredibly dangerous creatures that live in the ocean. And where they come from historically, the beliefs of the people are that long ago, um, the, there was this, the, basically the creation myth to these people, is they had this right. wonderful world-spanning society that was just great and prosperous utopia and mankind was super happy and then the gods had a war in the heavens and the gods fought the demons for a long time in the sky and there was like you know all this horrible stuff happening and stuff falling to the world and uh but then the gods won uh, the gods the gods were victorious and they cast the demons down uh they threw the demons out of the sky well the demons fell to earth at that point well not earth it's not earth sorry <laughs> the demons fell to the ground that and mm-hmm. earth and that synonym for ground, I guess. Um, so terra, the demons terra firma, fell. right? Terra firma. So the so the demons fell, and then uh, started taking out their rage on mankind. It basically obliterated uh, humanity. Uh, it was basically an apocalypse. Uh, they destroyed everything, and it was an un, un unfathomable war until one great the gods sent one great hero down from the sky to help the survivors rally and fight back the demons and there's we know there's other continents um but they can't reach them because you can't cross the ocean in this world there is no crossing the ocean you will die uh basically the demons in, in Locke are that if you are if there's water deeper than you can see your feet it's too dangerous um and some people take this really far, like Ashok has like his super hardcore religious understanding of the law. So Ashok is like water phobic, right? Um, 
But like you get in the rest of the world, like you avoid the ocean at all costs. You do not go by the ocean. You do not go on the beach. Um, the closer you are to the ocean, the more danger you are because demons uh, like to come onto land and they're pissed. And basically the way the law understands it is that there's an agreement. Man doesn't go on the ocean. Demons don't come on land. If either do, that's trespassing and we're going to kill you. Now you can kill a demon, but it is hard. They are mm -hmm. tough, tough, tough. And they come in different shapes and sizes as we've seen in the series. Uh, we've seen probably six, six different kinds now. Um, what they all have in common though, is they are scary as hell. They are vicious. They are fast. They are strong. Uh, they're really hard to injure. Uh, their skin is damn near impenetrable. However, uh, economically speaking, demons are incredibly valuable. If you can get a demon body, uh, demons actually have this essence inside of them that can be used to make magic. And there's mm -hmm. only two sources of magic in this world that people know of. Uh, one is the ancient material called black steel, uh, which has been around since the, uh, the olden times. Uh, and that's what the great hero who fell to the world brought with him uh, to teach people. Then there's the demons themselves. And if you have demon parts, demon body parts can be used to make magic. It's not as good as black steel. It's kind of like an inferior uh, thing, but it's replenishable. Whereas black steel, what's there is there. There is no more. And when it's used up, it's done. It's a, it's a finite resource. Whereas demons... So there is actually, even though demons are so scary and dangerous, there is actually a trade in demon body parts. I have illegal underground demon smuggling in this world. Uh, and people who are criminals, because because the law claims all the demon. If there's a dead demon washes up on the sea, on the shore, because when they die, they wash up on the beach. Uh, that's supposed to be turned over to the local great house and it's their property to be used and distributed. Uh, only, of course, if there's money to be made, people don't do that. And so we have illegal demon smugglers. That's one of my other main characters, uh, Gutch. But the demons, from what we've seen, they are very intelligent, even though they're completely alien. They don't, there's only one person in the entire series who has figured out how to communicate with a demon. And he's a very, very, very intelligent man. Um, but that's it. And even for him, I mean, we're talking like his eyes bleed when he's done. These things do not communicate like, like we communicate. They actually have a form of telepathy um, that, is, <laughs> that is really weird. Um, but very few people can fight a demon and survive. You're going to die. Usually when people fight a demon, they, they, they try to get 50 or 100 warriors and go at it. Uh, Ashok has defeated demons by himself. He is one of the only people in history to have ever done so. Um, and they're terrifying. Like, they, they, I love them as, as antagonists. Uh, they're completely weird. And as the story goes on, as the series goes on, by book four, you actually get a little bit of a glimpse into what the demons are up to. Mm -hmm. um, and, and because before, because they're so alien, it's not like, it's not like they're, they're, their motivations are obvious or clear you know, because uh, they don't communicate. They're just these terrifying specters that occasionally rise out of the ocean, kill a few hundred people, and then go back in the water when they're bored. <laughs> you know? Is there, so, is, there, is there a reason they don't come further in or come in, in mass? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all you need to say. I think that's all well, you need to say. Well, I do establish that they do, they will travel via river uh, and they will go up river. 
but but it's rare to see demons in land. And like, in fact, the capital, uh, the capital city, where the, the central hub of the law, basically, it's cross between Las Vegas and Washington D.C. Um, and just as wicked as both in the same ways, um, it's in the very center of the continent because mm-hmm. that's the farthest place you can get from the ocean. And even though the very center of the continent continent is uh, is a uh, desert valley, which is super unpleasant, it's very very hot, very dry. Um, that's where they built the capital. So the capital is kind of this unnatural thing that shouldn't exist. Uh, like all its water has to be piped in via aqueduct or it just couldn't exist. Um, however, uh, it does exist because in the minds of these people where the ocean is bad, where are your elite people going to be? As far from the ocean as possible. Hence, they're, they're in the capital. Which is funny because I saw somebody who was looking at the map from the book one time. They hadn't read the book and it was like, what is with these fantasy novels where they have like some Mordor area in the middle? And I was like, <laughs> dude, it's called mountains and you need to look at a map. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm just yeah. saying here. <laughs> now themes, what themes play out in this, in this novel? I think we, we touched on them a little bit given kind of the, Corruption in the capital, uh, political meandering, shaping the narrative, things like that. Yeah. Say, say a little bit more about what you think of the common themes. Well, that's all part of it. Now, one of my personal philosophies is I'm very big on this. because People think that I'm anti-message in a book. I'm not. I'm not anti-message. What I am is I am anti-message first. I'm, I'm a big believer in story first, message later. The key is you got to entertain the reader. You, as Jim Butcher said one time, uh, I never preach harder than you can entertain. You know, so right. entertainment's got to right. come first. That said, I'm all about stick, uh, sticking like ideas and themes and that kind of thing in there. Some big ones, like we already talked about the corruption and the and the pandering and the narrative and the, and the twisting of reality and truth and manipulating people. But a big part of the series too is I, I like writing about heroes. I don't like writing mm-hmm. about, uh, um, you know, I heard somebody talk about Game of Thrones once. They talked about how it was... Um, victims and thugs it's kind of a story of victims and thugs i i like my fantasy to be about heroes uh genuine like like people like like the great the great people of history you know and so in this case i am actually it's one of the themes is about heroism and it's about sacrifice and it's about rising above what you were or what you should have been um I do get into the book because we're, we're talking about a very collective society here with the caste systems. We're very, one of the themes is the law declares that every man has a place. And we, that's a, that's a thing. It's just a saying that people have. And it's basically to put down people who get uppity and they try to get above their place. The society has given them. Well, in this I'm right. People who break that. Uh, and, and mm-hmm. not always good because there's risks with that too. And so I have characters who, who they break that where the law says every minute has a place, but they break the law and they, they rise above what they should be. And that doesn't always end well. I mean, sometimes it does. And that that's a part of it is like, when you do that, there's a risk to that. You know, uh, I got characters like Devados who is doing the, uh, you know, Icarus flying too close to the sun thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also got guys like Ashok or Jagdish who are building something, you know, they're creating something better. They're improving the world. Uh, Rada trying to save the world you know trying to save millions of people so so there's that there's that element and and then i've got other people who have been you know stuck in that every man has a place carno 
you know, Cardo fulfills his duty, you know, but at the same time I got that guy is one of the most popular characters in the series because he's such a good dude trying to do the right thing in his way, you know? Um, so I like writing about heroes and, 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 and so that's definitely a theme there. Um, I definitely, I definitely get into the, the, the theme of like the, the, of the, of the casts being wrong. I am, I, I'm a, I'm an individualist, right? I, I hate, uh, societal buckets, if that makes sense, where they say, you are this, this, and this, you go in this bucket. That's what you believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate people who believe in predetermined outcomes based upon your station of birth. Uh, so that's one reason I wanted to write a, a book with cast rigid cast systems is because I wanted to break them, you know, and I hate that. I, 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 I grew up really poor. Uh, I came from like, uh, you know, uh, I came from like a really low, uh, spot and I, I said, screw that. That's dumb, you know? And so I get yelled at a lot cause I'm like, Mr. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And that's not fashionable nowadays. You're not supposed to do that anymore. That's how, how dare you say you can pull people up by the boot- because man, mankind has done it for thousands of years. Yeah. And just because your circumstances right now might be difficult. Doesn't mean that people in even far worse circumstances than you haven't pulled themselves up by the bootstraps. And the whole pull yourself up by the bootstraps just means is make your world better. Uh, and so I'm writing about a bunch of characters who are trying to make their world better and their world sucks. Their world is hard. I mean, we're, I, 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 am writing about people who are stuck between demons and genocide. <laughs> you know, that's like, <laughs> that's like two of the main things going on in this book at the same time. Um, yeah, so definitely themes of that, and like, I, but the, ultimately, like a lot of Bayon books, um, I, I I love the philosophy Tony Weisskopf has, where she wants hope. I mean, bad things can happen, and bad things happen in the series. Like I said, we're having genocide and demon invasions, and you know, it's a post-apocalyptic world, a fallen world, uh, run by a bunch of horrible people. But there's still hope, and people fight. And they fight for good and they fight for hope and they're trying to make their world a better place. According to, you know, a lot of us would not approve of what they think is a better place, you know, obviously. Uh, I mean, Ashok is like kicking Castless out of the way when the book <laughs> starts. You know, it's like, hey, pfft, you know, whatever. You brought right. you brought my you brought my breakfast too slow. I'm just gonna, you know, throw a rock at you. <laughs> he wouldn't that'd be too much effort. He wouldn't do that. But but there's that there's that element, you know, it's like it's like people rising up. And people trying to better themselves and to better their families. So yeah, there's a bunch of themes in here. <laughs> I mean, I, I, uh, I, I bang the drum, but honestly, the whole thing is I'm writing a, a fun, awesome adventure story first and foremost, uh, big, cool, epic fantasy. And then all yeah. this other stuff just kind of makes the world real. You can still write fiction that has a message without beating people over the head with it. Yeah, my and doing it in a way that yeah, and doing it in a way that's entertaining and and they can make their own choices as opposed to why am I reading this book about message X, right? Well, because the thing that killed me is like for the longest time, this is how I got kind of a rep in this industry was like complaining about this kind of stuff. I'd pick up a book and it'd be like the book is supposed to be about like some space station in danger or uh some apocalyptic scenario or some some war in a fantasy world. And what do I get when I start reading the book? Page after page after page beating me over the head about social message X from 
whatever year the book was written, you know? So if the book was written in 1997, it's going to be about 1997 political issues, you know? Oh, well, here clearly is the thinly veiled George W. Bush, you know? And, and my commentary on Iraq, kind of like, oh my gosh, or, or just whatever, <laughs> you know, and it just goes on and on and on like that. I was like, but humans, you know, we respond to universal themes. <clears throat> and, and I got so tired of reading sci-fi novels set 200 years in the future. And rather than being about universal themes that mankind has struggled with for thousands of years, I mean, going back to like like our our you know, themes that are in the Bible, things that are in the Bhagavad Gita, things that you know mm-hmm. were talked about by by Aristotle, right? You know, things that man has always dealt with. No, it's got to be about whatever the political issue of twenty twenty three is, and and we're just going to shoehorn that in there and have a big. Why are we even assuming that that stuff's going to be an issue in two hundred years? It'll you be know? a lot of it's going to be forgotten. Well, I mean, we're not arguing right now on whether women should have the right to vote or wear pants, okay? <laughs> I mean, so if I'm writing a, a story set in 20, uh, 2555, you know, and I'm like 500 years in the future, and I'm like, I mean, maybe if that's what the story's about, but a lot of this stuff is just try hard shoehorning in modern issues. And like, come on, man, mankind is bigger and deeper than what the shallow, superficial message of the day is. Right. on any given day and if you want to here's the thing if you want to write a book about global warming great write a book about global warming write a book about climate change that's awesome more power to you but don't bait and switch me a thing where i'm writing a sci-fi action adventure novel and the whole thing is a screed about dying polar bears we actually <laughs> joked about that genre was the dying polar bear genre because we had about 10 years there where every single science fiction novel had to talk about global warming and climate change and remember everything was underwater uh and it just was like such a tired annoying trope well there's even a genre now it's cli-fi right it actually has a name yeah it's cli-fi yeah (laughs) yeah and it's just like i mean come on guys if you're gonna make that make that i mean that's fine if you're gonna go the the roland emmerich style big catastrophe movie fine you know that advertise it as such but just quit shoehorning in your stuff like i said so like i said the themes i'm hitting in this book are big themes you know, themes mm-hmm. that like, like people have had forever, you know, oh my gosh, my, my rulers are unjust and, and manipulating the people. Wow. You know, that, that hasn't been, that's never happened. It's never happened in history, Larry. No, I mean, that's never <laughs> going back to every single historical record ever written, <laughs> you know, but no, it's, it's, yeah, I'm definitely, uh, so yeah, themes are there, but honestly, entertainment first by far entertain the reader then stick in your deep stuff, but you've got to do it organically. It's got to be part of the universe. It can't just some be shoehorned in. And some of it might even be subconscious, right? You can't oh, yeah. not inject some, you know, this stuff. Sometimes it's a surprise. Every right? writer is a sum of our experiences. And we just, we just, there's no other way around it. You are who you are. And I can write about people who are drastically different than me because I have an imagination. And I just try to put myself in. And the thing is, a lot of writers are like, well, I can't write this or I can't write that because I'm not that. That's stupid. I'm not Ashok Vidal. I'm not. I'm not a magical super soldier uh, from from an Indian-based caste system who fights demons for a living and burns villages. However, I can fake it really well. Okay, but we're going to actually. You raise you raise it. You raise an interesting point, and I'm going to go there. So, have you gotten any complaints about cultural appropriation? <laughs> I did. Yeah, actually, it's kind of funny. So, uh, when the very first book came out, uh, Son of the Black Sword. 
I did have some whiny reviews came out right. Oh my gosh, Larry Korea culture. And one of the reviews was hilarious. Cause this guy's like, well, cause the beginning I had, uh, Ashok and Devados at the end of a journey are, are, are eaten and, and what they were served was basically rice balls. It was basically compressed rice and, mm-hmm. and they're eating rice balls. And this guy got all mad. He's like, oh, Larry Korea just thinks that all Asians are the same. And so they're, they're, India is in Asia, so they must eat rice balls. So I responded with a Google image link to um, Indian rice ball recipes. And it was like 14 pages of like all these delicious looking things. Because here's the thing. Every society on earth that has rice has at some point in time squeezed it into a ball. <laughs> Why? Because it's convenient. You squeeze rice into a shape a log or a roll and you wrap it up and you take it with you. Everyone has ever done that. But this guy's like, oh, that's that's so evil. How racist of you to assume that Indians would eat rice. Because everyone eats rice. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, is- it, it, it's how humanity has moved forward as a species by sharing ideas, adopting good ideas, discarding bad ideas, sometimes adopting bad ideas and learning lessons from them. They also eat bread. <laughs> i mean and the thing is it's like i remember one time the story about some doofus in the publishing industry got really mad at a, at a dinner because they've gone out to a thai restaurant and um uh they had egg rolls on the menu and there's a thai restaurant owned by a thai family from thailand but they had egg rolls on the menu and so this woman threw a frothing fit because how dare they have egg rolls because egg rolls are chinese and this is cultural appropriation. Okay, first off, an egg roll is just something in a rolled up dough fried, right? Every society on earth has one. So if the if the Thai and plus where's Thailand? Here's China, here's Thailand. I'm pretty sure at some point in time a Chinese style egg roll made it across the border. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, no. maybe, yeah. maybe, Larry. <laughs> well, here's the funny thing, too. It's like, so they're yelling at me about cultural appropriation. And it was honestly, it's like the worst people in the world were yelling about corporate. Everybody else was having a good time. Mm-hmm. Ironically, uh, I, I heard one time from the, the Simon & Schuster sales rep for international sales that um, uh, Son of the Black Sword had actually done extremely well uh, in the uh, English language market uh, fiction uh, in India. It has sold really well. It's very, it's actually, the. Uh, it's doing well. It's a, it, people like it. No one's offended. Like nobody actually Indian is offended by this at all. And and it's just funny because plus here's the thing on the cultural appropriation thing. And this is, this is where I get to put my cultural appropriator hat on because I'm Portuguese. My culture is cultural appropriation. That's what my people do. And in fact, Vindaloo in India, Portuguese, <laughs> uh, Tempura in Japan, Portuguese. The chili pepper was brought to Thailand by the Portuguese. We brought everybody pants and guns. Two solid contributions at the very least, right? I mean, so honestly, when it comes to cultural, the cultural appropriation police yell at me is like, dude, I'm Portuguese. I am like literally the last dude in the world. Uh, like, like you can yell out about cultural appropriation because that's quite literally... If you if you were to look at every port city on earth, there's a dude there whose last name is Korea. <laughs> okay. So there you go. My family's Azorian. So we're not just the Portuguese, we're the ocean Portuguese. All right? <laughs> Might be Atlantean. Never know. Yeah, we're, we're, I mean, we're that's one of the theories that we were the top of Atlantis. And I was like, we're the mountains of Atlantis, and like 
I'll run with that. So I'll cultural appropriate whatever I want. <laughs> All right. So two quick questions. So what's what more is in store for Ashok in terms of books, uh, I don't know, short stories, things like that. And then what else do you have? What projects are you working on right now? Okay, so the the fifth and final planned book in the in this in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior is called Graveyard of Demons. Uh, and if you remember a scene from book three, I talked about the Graveyard of Demons a little bit, and you got to see some of that. And there's more than one. Um, and that and that's kind of what we're leading up to the final big uh, climatic uh, end of the series uh, that is planned. Don't know when that's going to be yet. Um, I, I've been about two years between books in this series, I believe. Uh, so working on that. However, right now I'm currently working on the uh, next Monster Hunter Memoirs novel with Jason Cordova mm-hmm. called Monster Hunter Memoirs Fever. Uh, it's set in the 1970s in Los Angeles, California, uh, in the age of disco. Saturday. Yep. I'll, yep. Uh, Saturday Night Fever. Yep. Kind of, yeah. It's actually pretty cool. And uh, Jason's a great writer, so I'm looking forward to that. I have another Monster Hunter Memoirs series uh, coming up. I'm probably going to do some black, or do, I'll finish the saga before this, but I have another one with uh, Les Johnson. Um, oh. Oh, yeah. Les oh, is yeah. Awesome. The NASA and, guy. The NASA yep. guy. Yeah. Les is, uh, Les is a literal rocket scientist, and I'm doing a Monster Hunter International uh, spinoff with him that will get a little. Um, and, and a little into Les's area of expertise. We'll put it that way. Uh, and then I have um, the next regular series, Monster Hunter, is actually going to be the next thing I'm working on. That'll be the book nine in the series. It'll be what comes after uh, uh, where I left off with Monster Hunter um, Bloodlines. I, I've written so many novels as I would. I was like, what's the last book? Uh, so that'd be the next regular Monster Hunter. And then I have another Grim Noir trilogy planned after that that I'll, that I'll be working on too. Are there, and you can stop me from asking this question if I, well, not just not answer it. Options, movie, film. Oh, yeah. Um, so as of right now, Monster International is optioned and Hard Magic is optioned, uh, both for TV shows, actually. However, uh, there hasn't been any development on Monster Hunter for several years. Uh, I mean, they, every now and then I get an update, they'll change something, although they have brought in script, script writers and they've done screenplays um, at different points, but the you know, projects come and go in Hollywood. It's weird. Uh, Hard Magic has uh, been optioned more recently and um, I believe last year. And so I'm just waiting to see what happens there. Cause you know, knock on wood, Hollywood's weird. I would love to see this series get, um, get uh, optioned by the guys that made RRR the movie. Well, so that was what Sri Lankan, because I think somebody got upset that it was Bollywood. Somebody said it was Bollywood. Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, uh, with the yeah. T, uh, Tamil. I think it's Tamil language. And yeah. so I'm, I would love, 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 love to see that get made by somebody like that. That would be the greatest thing ever, and I would love that. So you know, call me. <laughs> you could probably make that happen easier than you think, my friend. I bet you, be- you could actually. Hey, if they're looking for if they're looking for a giant epic novel series, I, I that's. Uh, kind of post-apocalyptic sci-fi slash epic fantasy fantasy sword and sorcery i'm their guy i'll put i'll they could put musical numbers in too i'm cool with that <laughs> any last any last words of advice for writers uh readers anything like that that you think's worth sharing honestly for writers just get out there and write i, I run a podcast called the writer dojo that's me and steve diamond i know you you're friends with steve too great guy yep uh and so we run a, a, a podcast produced by jack wilder and uh check that out if they want any writing advice we do a weekly episode and we're up to 80 something episodes now 
Um, and for everybody else, I, I hope you guys like this book. I love this series. Uh, enjoy it. Yeah, definitely get your copy. The book is fantastic. I enjoyed every page of it. So thank you, Larry, and uh, go out and buy some copies. Thanks, Sean. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony world's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. Tamerlane Ray was the image of the middle-level dome bureaucrats that had been the favorite target of political caricaturists when Johnny was growing up. Paunchy and soft, with expensive clothes in better shape than he was, he had that faintly condescending air that frontier people often claimed to sense in all mainstream Dominion citizens. And his news was as bad as it could possibly be. Understand, we'll be doing what we can to draw off the bulk of the troughed forces, he said, waving a finger at the curved battlefront on the Star Force tactical map he'd brought with him. But while we'll be keeping them pretty busy, it's unlikely they'll forget about you completely. The Joint Command's best estimate is that you can expect anywhere from twenty to a hundred thousand troops on your three planets within a year. My God, Syndic Liang Kijika gasped. A hundred thousand? That's a quarter of our combined populations. But you have nearly 2,400 cobras, Ray pointed out. A hundred thousand troughs shouldn't be too much for them to handle if past experience proves anything. Except that almost 70% of those cobras have never seen any sort of warfare, Johnny put in, striving to keep his voice calm as the memories of Adirondack swirled like swamp vapor through his mind. And those who have are likely to be unfit for duty by the time the attack comes. Those who can't, teach, Ray quoted. Your veterans ought to be able to whip them into shape in a few months. Gentlemen, I didn't come here to run your defense for you. It's your people and your world, and you'll undoubtedly do a better job of it than I or anyone else on Asgard could. I came here solely to give you a warning of what was coming down and to bring back the dozen or so Dominion citizens that the ban on commercial travel has stranded here. We're all Dominion citizens, Tamis Dion snarled. Of course, of course, Ray said. You know what I mean. Anyway, I'll want those people packed and on my ship within six hours. I have their names, but you'll have to find them for me. What's being done to try and prevent the war, Johnny asked. Ray frowned slightly. It's beyond prevention, Governor. I thought I'd made that clear. But the Central Committee is still talking. In order to delay the outbreak long enough for you to prepare. What do you mean, prepare? Dion snapped rising half out of his seat. What the hell are we going to do? Build anti-aircraft guns out of cyprene trees? You're condemning us to little more than a choice of deaths, murder by the troughts, or the slow strangulation of a closed supply pipeline. 
I am not responsible for what's happened, Ray shot back. The Trofts started this, and you ought to be damned glad the committee was willing to back you up. If it hadn't, you'd have been overrun years ago. He paused, visibly regaining his control. Here's the list of people I'm authorized to bring back, he said, sliding a mag cart across the table toward Johnny. Six hours, remember, because the Mansana's leaving in... Now, eleven. Slowly, Johnny reached across the table and picked up the mag card. The die was apparently cast, but there was too much at stake to just sit and do nothing. I'd like to talk to Governor General Stigur about sending an emissary back with you, he said, to find out what's really going on. Out of the question, Ray shook his head. In the first place, we stand an even chance of getting hit by the troughs before we ever reach Dominion space. And even if we get through, your emissary would just be trapped there. The corridor hasn't a prayer of staying open long enough for him to return, and he'd just be dead weight on Asgard. He could function as a consultant on conditions here, Johnny persisted. You admitted yourself you don't really know us. A consultant to what end? Are you expecting the Star Force to launch a backup assault through a hundred light-years of troughed territory? Ray glanced around the table at the others and stood up. Unless there are any more questions, I'm going back to the Mensana for a while. Please inform me when Governor General Stigur arrives. Nodding, he strode briskly from the room. Doesn't care Falk's droppings for us, does he? Kijika growled. His fingertips were pressed hard enough against the tabletop to show white under the nails. It's not going to matter much longer what he or anyone else in the Dominion thinks about us, Dion said grimly. Maybe we can postpone that a bit, Johnny told him, handing Dion the mag card. Would you give this to Theron Yutu and have him start locating these people? I have an important call to make. Governor-General Brahm Stigur was still en route to Capitalia, but he was within constant range of the HAP-2 communications satellite now, and the picture was crystal clear. Not that it mattered, really. Stigur's expression was exactly as Johnny had expected it to be. So that's it, then, the other said when Johnny had summarized Ray's doomsday message. The Trofts have finally gotten their courage up for round two. Damn them all to hell, he snorted. Well, what's it going to take to get us ready for a siege? More time than we've got, Johnny said bluntly. To be brutally honest, Brom, I don't think we've got an Ice Cube's chance on Vega if the Trofts decide they really want us. The new Cobras are our only defense, and they know less than nothing about warfare. Stigur grimaced. Should we be discussing this on a broadcast signal? We're going to keep all this a secret? Not hardly, Stigur conceded. All right, Johnny. You didn't call just to give me advance notice of Armageddon. What do you want? Johnny swallowed hard. Permission to return with Ray to Asgard and see what can be done to hold off the war. Stigur's eyebrows lifted toward his hairline. Don't you think they've done everything possible in that direction already? I don't know. How can we unless we talk directly to the Central Committee or Joint Command? Stigur exhaled loudly. We need you here. You know better than that. I can't fight worth a damn anymore. And there are a lot of First Cobras with better military and tactical knowledge. What about your family, then? Stigur asked quietly. They need you. Johnny took a deep breath. Twenty-nine years ago, I left all the family I had then to fight for people I didn't even know. How can I pass up even the slimmest chance now to save the lives of not only my wife and children, but virtually all the friends I've ever had? 
Stigur gazed at him for a long minute, his expression giving away none of what was going on behind it. Much as I hate to admit it, I suppose you're right, he finally said. I'll recommend to this Ray character that he take you along. Um, another half hour to Capitalia, looks like. I should have his answer in an hour or so. In the meantime, he hesitated. You'd better let you two handle things and go discuss this with Chris. Thanks, Prom. I'd already planned to do that. I'll talk to you whenever I know something. He nodded and the screen went blank. Sighing, Johnny carefully flexed his rebellious elbows and punched for you two. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Larry Korea, and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirerod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.